0: My name is Kevin Porter. I'm with the student minister here, and I'm just super glad to be able to speak this morning. Uh, and so I pray that you will be encouraged, and uh, I've been praying that you will be able to hear something that God wants us to hear this morning. My life did not start getting satisfying until I stopped making my own plans, and I started asking God what His plans were. Is anybody else that would be willing to raise your hand and say, you have learned this lesson about life as well, that it is not satisfying when you make your own plans until you start making... letting God make plans. We can stop right there. Sermon over. Thank you for your time. We can go home. That would be enough of encouragement for the day, because this lesson is so important. I'm thinking about my life, and this was something that I did not grasp instinctually. I don't know if anybody does. I wanted to make all of my own plans. You see, I knew I was going to be a doctor because my dad was a doctor. Well, it turns out that I'm uh, deathly afraid of blood, so that's not going to happen. I thought I was going to be a football player, Uh, It doesn't turn out that I'm going to be 6'1 like my dad either, so I can't really follow in those footsteps. I thought that she was the one, until she wasn't. And then I thought the next one was the one, and it turns out she wasn't either. And then four times after getting dumped, I started realizing, maybe I don't know what life is all about and how to make this happen for myself. You get to a place, hopefully in life, where you realize that you don't know how life is supposed to work for yourself or for anyone Else. And praise God, I feel like that happened for me earlier than it's happened for other people. And my hope for, for the seniors is that this will happen now, that you won't spend another day living any other way than what Paul's going to teach us about in Galatians. After I graduated from ACU, I decided to go and make my own plans once more. You see, I'd wanted to be a youth minister since the seventh grade, but my senior year of college, after I'm graduating with a youth ministry degree, I decide, ah, I don't think I want to work in a church. What are you going to do with a youth ministry degree if you don't want to work in a church? So I just go, go start applying for other jobs. And I somehow landed a job as the service manager at a Ford dealership. And you might be like, oh, that sounds like a good job if you're not going to go use your degree. Seems like you kind of landed a good deal there. No, I don't know anything about cars. I don't know why they would have hired me whatsoever. I'm 37 and I just learned how to change the blinker bulbs in my car. And I was like celebrating this because that's how bad I am at cars. My plans were going to put me in a job that I would have failed miserably at. And I eventually gave up searching for my own plans of my own job. And I just asked God, for maybe the first time in my life, God, what do you want me to do? No preconceived ideas. No plans that I was just hoping he would bless. You know how that goes, where you've kind of got everything planned out. And then you go to God in prayer, and you're like, God, could you just sprinkle a little bit of your blessings on top of this prayer? That's not what I did at all. I had no ideas at all of what he might have said. It was like walking up to a vending machine, and instead of going up and pressing E4, Snickers, I know that's going to make me happy, I just turned to the guy next to me and said, "Eh, why don't you choose what I'm going to have out of the vending machine? No one has ever been in a vending machine and asked for advice about what you should get. You don't give over decision-making power about the snack you're going to have. So it's no surprise that we don't give over decision-making about much else in our life either. This is not the norm that we have as our default. And the Galatian church, I think, was struggling with this same thing, okay? The background is this. Jesus Christ has died, been crucified, risen again. And because of that sacrifice, the Mosaic law that the Jews had to follow, he paid the price that was required for the fact that all the Jews and Israelites had not been following the law. And because he paid the price of the law, Well, now people that were Gentiles, that were not Jewish law followers, they could now come to be a part of the family of God. And that's how the Galatian church came to be about. Because of what God had done on the cross, people that were not Jews could be a part of the family of God. But some Jewish Christians came up to the city of Antioch, which is in Galatia, and they started saying, no, the Gentiles need to follow some of the customary laws Uh, that we Jews have followed. The primary one being circumcision. And I just kind of want to defend them for a little bit here. I think this group that Paul calls the circumcision group, I think that's like an insult, like a diss that he gives to them, but not very good diss in my opinion. But he does not think kindly of them. He's looking at them saying, or the, the circumcision group is looking at them saying, you have got to do this if you are going to be saved. And I don't blame them because circumcision was the primary way that you were identified as one of God's people. We read this in Genesis 17, 14. It says, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. I see what he did there. He has broken my covenant. The circumcision group is good-hearted, all right? They want to do the right thing. They just fail to see that a major shift has happened. Something has changed and they are defaulting back to an old way of thinking. I had this happen in a very small way when I broke my arm two weeks ago. The first week, I had a cast that went all the way up past my elbow so that I couldn't bend my elbow. And so I'm like walking around like a robot, waving at people by like turning my whole body. You can't be a public speaker very easily without bending your elbow. And then thankfully, after a week, they took that off and they put the short one on. Well, what do you think that my muscles wanted to keep doing even though that part had been taken off? Instead of being relaxed in the freedom that I had been given, my muscles just kept it up here the whole time. I'd be walking around the house and Darcy would be like, Kevin, you're doing it again. I'm like, oh, whoops. It's like, I didn't want it up here. That was annoying. I was tired of it the whole week that I had it that way. But then after I received freedom from that, I still kept bringing it back up here because that was my default way of doing things. Something had changed, but I was defaulting back to what I was used to am I sure it's okay to bend my arm down? My body didn't know that unless I told it so. Is it sure that you don't have to be circumcised? Because God said he was going to cut off people that didn't do that. Are we sure we don't have to do things the old way? And Paul says in Galatians three twenty four an answer to that question. He says, so the law was our guardian. And at this point, the circumcision group is probably getting really excited. They think Paul's about to say, yeah, he's on our side. They're like, yeah, the law is our guardian. To which Paul would have said, no, I wrote the law was our guardian. See, the law guarded the Jews to make sure that they got blessings if they followed it, and it made sure that they avoided curses if they broke it. The law guarded them into the blessed life. And so circumcision was the main sign of that. It's no surprise that they thought that this was important to keep going about. But Paul goes on to say the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith, not by following the law. Jesus put it in the following words before Paul ever wrote this letter to the Galatians. He was out teaching, and so people came to him, Jews that had been following Jewish law, and they had a primarily Jewish question to ask. They said, what must we do to do the works that God requires? I mean, if Jesus was here, that'd be a question I would probably want to ask him too. And he answers them. He says, the work of God is this. And you can imagine they're probably pretty excited. Like, Jesus is actually going to answer. He's going to clarify this thing that we have wondered for all these years. What is it that I must do? He says, the work of God is this. To believe in the one that he sent. They were not expecting this answer. Simply to believe? Paul says that the law guarded until Christ came. So my question for us this morning is, what guarded us before we came to Christ? The law was what guarded them and guided them into a good life. We probably have something else. Maybe you wouldn't be able to articulate it as simple as the law. But maybe you had some mentality that said, if I do this, that's going to equal a good life for myself. And then you came to Christ, and Christ showed you a different way. And it's important to know what that old way was, because it is going to be the thing that we default back to if we're not intentional. And so we got to be aware of it so we can recognize, oh man, I've defaulted back to this old way of life. Well, for me, my old way of life before Christ, I'm going to call it soapbox living. I've got two boxes up here. One on my left is a soapbox and the one on the right we're going to call as a prayer stool, all right? And a soapbox represents how I viewed my life before that. You see. Soapboxes were used if you wanted to be in the public square before they had microphones, before they had massive amphitheaters or rooms like this. If you wanted to say something that you were confident in, you would get up on your soapbox. There's only room enough for one up here. I don't need any other voices up here. I'm confident that I know and I'm going to share that with you guys. Soapbox living was me. Remember, I knew I was going to be a doctor. I knew I was going to play football. I knew that she was the one. And I was wrong about every single one of those things, even though I was confident about it, right? A soapbox is something you can even go see. Uh, there's a place in London, Hyde Park, called Speaker's Corner. And you can go to Speaker's Corner today, and you will find people up on soapboxes talking about all sorts of subjects. And they are supremely confident. That's the thing you notice about people up on a soapbox, is no one is nervous. No one is sort of like shy. No one is anything but confident when they get up on a soapbox, Right? I mean, you don't get up on a soapbox and say, let's have a discussion about something. You never get up on a soapbox and say, you know, I'm not totally sure what I think about this subject. What do you guys in the audience think? You get up on a soapbox because you know, because you're confident, and that's how I lived my life was I knew and I was confident. And the thing about the soapbox is that it represented everything, not just kind of minor decisions about football or careers. It also represented the way I viewed my relationship with God. Because the most egregious soapbox I ever got up on was the soapbox that says, I'm not so bad, I'm a pretty good person, and so I have self-righteousness that allows me to have favor with God. And I remember having a moment in my life where this became so apparent to me. I was at a Bible study, and one of my friends was asking, a small group of us, he said, so Kevin, what sin do you struggle with? Everybody's got sin, everybody struggles with it. Kevin, what about you? And I'm a pretty open book, so I was willing to share. And I start thinking, I'm like, uh, I mean, I don't know if I really struggle with sin. I know I got sin, uh, I'm not saying that, but I don't quite know. And I couldn't think of what sin I struggle with. And my friend looks back at me, he's like, Kevin, you need to humble yourself. Everybody has got sin, and if you don't know what it is, it's just because you're blind to it. And so in that moment, I did. I metaphorically got off the soapbox of my self-righteousness, and I asked God, God, will you reveal my sin to me? And he did. He convicted me of his holiness. He convicted me of my need for a savior. And that led me off of a soapbox and onto this prayer stool, metaphorically. I got on my knees and I asked God what he thought. I humbled myself. And this is what we do on a soapbox. We lower ourselves. We submit. Isn't that what prayer is? Prayer is when you realize, I don't have what it takes and so you come down onto your knees and you say, but I believe, God, that you do have what it takes. These are two different ways of living that Paul is addressing in this letter to the, uh, to the Galatians. And so I'm thinking about this whole idea of a soapbox, what I'm confident that I can do versus what I'm confident that God can do. And I'm recognizing that I need to change my ways. Paul is about to blow the Galatians' minds to let us know just how deeply those changes can go. How pervasive this mentality needs to seep into every aspect of our lives. Because the Jewish pattern was similar to a prayer stool and a soapbox. You see, they didn't mind getting on their knees once a year and making sacrifices for their sin. They knew they had sin. They knew that somebody else had to pay the price, in this case, an animal. And they knew that forgiveness was only a gift from God. But the moment that the sacrifice was made and that they were cleansed and forgiven, they would go right back to, now I've got to follow the law. And if I do, blessings. If I don't, curses. This was their pattern year after year. So when the Messiah comes, it makes sense that they would think that it's going to be a similar pattern. The only difference is instead of a sacrificial lamb, we have the Lamb of God. But after I receive forgiveness there, I'm I'm still in charge of making sure that I do the right things. Like this is still up to me to make sure that I do good, right? Paul says no. In fact, in chapter three, verses one through five, he says this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's the circumcision group. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law that you did, by doing things right in my own strength, or by believing what you heard, humbled faith, I would call that. Are you so foolish, he goes on, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, if you started in God's strength, are you finishing in your own strength? Have you experienced so much in vain, he says, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law that you did or by believing what you heard? Does getting on a soapbox and doing what's right in your own strength bring about miracles or is it the strength of God? I think this same way many times. I might not say it out loud, but sometimes I have. Have you ever thought this? Salvation is by grace alone. Easy to say that, easy to think that. But what I add on top of that is, but kind of everything else after that is up to me, right? Or what about this? You know what? God met me halfway, and so it's my responsibility to meet him halfway. That actually sounds like a kind of a good way to live, right? I think Paul's saying something different. Or maybe you've had these thoughts. You know what? I don't even know if they're a Christian based on what they do. Or maybe you had it personal. You know what? I don't know what I am doing wrong. That God isn't working in my life. Or maybe you thought about other people. If you really loved God, you would. And we have all these ways that we think about what's important is what we do. Our abilities, our behaviors. And Paul's coming along and saying something very different from this. Because every single one of those thoughts starts with me and my actions. The presumption is I know what's right and very simply I do it. Thank you God for saving me. Now you can step aside and be proud of me. I know what's good, I know what's evil, and in my own strength I will be God. I mean, I will serve God. Remember Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if they ate from it they would be like God? Is that that different than thinking I know what's right and it's up to me to make it happen? I think we're dangerously close to the very fall that happened with Adam and Eve when we live this way, in our own strength in the flesh. And Paul put it this way, Galatians 2:20 20 and 21. He says, I, this soapbox way of living, I, that that part of me has been crucified with Christ. And I, doing things in my own strength, that guy no longer lives. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, well, I live it by faith. Prayer stool living. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God Remember we had grace at the beginning of our salvation? He's saying continue on in that same grace. I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, well, then Christ died for nothing. What he's saying is if you start in the Spirit and you finish in the flesh, did Christ die for anything? This is the new way. We begin and we finish by the Spirit. Think about Samson in the Old Testament. It's one of the few stories where you get to see the Holy Spirit show up before Jesus forgave us of our sins. And it says the Spirit of God would come on Samson, and wow, was he able to have amazing feats of strength when that would happen. The stories are awesome. He started in the Spirit. But I believe that Samson did not finish in the Spirit. He finished in the flesh. Because remember, he falls in love with Delilah, and Delilah starts asking, what's the secret of your strength? And he lies to her several times. Well, if you do this, well, then I'll lose my strength. And the next morning he wakes up, and she did that. What did Delilah say? Like, oh, just kidding. Like, what was Samson thinking? He had to have known that by the time he finally gave in and said, if you cut my hair, that's actually what will remove my strength. I think that Samson had gotten to a place where he thought he could actually finish in his own strength. And I think this because when he wakes up and Delilah has actually cut his hair, his natural reaction should have been, oh, my goodness. My hair's cut, my strength is gone, I don't stand a chance against this horde of men running in to capture me. But what does Samson do? Samson gets up and he tries to fight. He thinks that he could do it in his own strength. Fast forward to the New Testament, story of Ananias and Sapphira. Members of the church in Jerusalem and people are selling things and giving to the poor. So they go sell a piece of land because somebody else had done that. We got some land, we could sell that. And they give the money to the church, and they say, this is everything that we sold it for. But they actually held some back, and they lied about it. And God actually kills them because of this. Strikes them dead. there on the spot because of this. They started in the Spirit, I believe. I don't think you joined the church in Jerusalem at the beginning if the Spirit of God was not moving in your life. It was too risky. You could have been killed for that. You could have been arrested for that. You would have been persecuted for that. I believe Ananias and Sapphira started in the Spirit, but then they... They reverted back to what they had known before, which is that my behaviors are what matter. And if my behaviors are what matter, well, then we're tempted to even look better than we actually are. And I think God is making an example through Ananias and Sapphira to say that's not how we do things anymore. Your behaviors and your actions and your abilities are not what matters in the kingdom of God. It is what I do through you. Second Corinthians four puts it this way: but we have this treasure in jars of clay. I believe the treasure is the Holy Spirit, and I believe the jar of clay is us. That's an insult, by the way. A jar of clay is nothing special whatsoever. It says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. If you were to open up a simple jar of clay that you found in an attic somewhere, and it was full of diamonds or gold coins or jewelry or stacks of money, no one would be like, yeah, I'm not surprised. I kind of thought that was going to be in that jar. No, you would be completely surprised because what it's being held by is ordinary. And what it would make you think is not anything special about the jar. What it would make you think about is who put that in there? And it's the same thing for us. It's not about our abilities and what we are capable of. In fact, God wants it to be seen that we are not very capable so that people will say, look at what somebody put inside that person. The Holy Spirit must be doing something powerful because that guy ain't nothing but a jar of clay. But who is the one person who could have actually gotten up on a soapbox, who could have said, I do know what's right, I do know what's wrong, and let me show you that I have the ability to do it? Jesus Christ. He's the only person that could have, uh, with authority, gotten up on a soapbox. But does Jesus get on a soapbox in his ministry that we see throughout Scripture? I could kind of make an argument of like, well, yeah, he gets up and talks a lot, But when you start to compare it to the idea of, did Jesus get down on his knees on a prayer stool, I think what you'll begin to see is that this is where Jesus lived his life. I don't think he lived a single day on the soapbox. But let's look at what scripture says, and you guys can decide for yourself. John 12, 50, Jesus' words, whatever I say, oh, he's about to get up on a soapbox, right? Well, it's just what the Father has told me to say. He didn't get that except for being on a prayer stool. John 14, 10, Jesus' words again. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, oh, he's going to get on a soapbox, right? Because he can do it. He's Jesus. I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And the most direct of them all, John 5, 19. The Son can do, he can do everything, right? That's not what Jesus says. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. And he gets that from being in prayer. When you look at Jesus, he's going to pray all the time. The disciples are almost like, yeah, you pray more than I can even stay awake for. Don't be foolish. And think that we have begun at salvation in the Spirit, but that now that the rest of life is back to our old way where it's somehow up to us. So when you don't know what to say, get on a prayer stool and seek the Father. When you don't know what to do, seek the Father. When you don't know what to do, what God has asked you to do, seek the Father for that even. You got on your knees at salvation, so stay there for the rest of your life in every situation, all right? A person can be on a soapbox and have all the money in the world and be completely dissatisfied. But a person can also be on a prayer stool and be headed to a cross and be completely content, You decide which life you want. One has power and one does not. So if Sam wants to go on and be coming on up, I'll finish with this. There's a lot of miserable Christians out there who, like the Galatians, started in the spirit but finished in the flesh. Their salvation is real, but the Christian life is really just them going back to their own strength. There's no power there, and it leads to frustration and misery. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm talking to you specifically seniors. May you never live another day of your life in your own strength. And may you live the rest of your days in nothing but the strength of God. Because if that happens, let's read one more passage about what life you can begin to expect in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. Patience kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It says, against such things, there is no law. This is where life is at, and I pray that that will be where you guys decide to live every day of your life.